I want to go back to discuss some of the concepts I introduced last Sunday uh, toward the end because I noticed <clears throat> about the last 10-15 minutes I just lost everybody uh, <laughs> and I could tell by the looks on the faces when I was talking about essence and subsistence and things like that. Uh, so I want to go back to that and <clears throat> try to clarify as much as I can. Please feel free to ask any questions uh, because this is really important foundational stuff and if you don't get this you're not going to get much of what we talk about um, next week either so we're going to uh, talk about three words in particular uh, first essence essence and another synonym for that would be nature uh, i can't really think of a distinction between those two i think those are pretty much synonymous terms okay when we talk about the essence of a thing or the nature of something uh, that is its most fundamental existence. Okay, so in other words, that would be the answer to the question, what is it? At the most foundational level, what is it? That's its essence. Okay, so um, think about uh, me. Okay, what am I? How would you answer that? What am I? At the most foundational, fundamental. I'm not talking about I'm a pastor, I'm a husband, not that. What am I? What is my existence? I am a what? Human. Right? Okay, so human, that's my essence, that's my nature. Okay? Um, now, you're also a human. Okay, that's your essence, that's your nature. Now, but but you're not part human. It's not like, you know, how many people are there on Earth, like, uh, what, 8 billion or so? Uh, am I one eight billionth of a human? Well, no. I have the entirety of the human essence in me. Right? I am fully human. And so when we talk about the three persons of God, they all share one essence fully. Okay, so it's not that Jesus is one-third God, the Holy Spirit's one-third God, the Father's one-third God. No. Each one is fully God, just like you're fully human and I'm fully human, even though we're distinct from one another. Okay, so um, in terms of the essence of God, the nature of God, that would include all of God's attributes. Everything that we talked about the last several months, that would be a part of what it means to be God, the nature of God, the essence of God. And so an implication of that is all three persons of the Trinity share those attributes. So when we say God is holy, God is eternal, God is immutable, whatever characteristics we use, those apply equally to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So the essence of God, the nature of God, that's everything that it means to be God. And Father, Son, and Spirit share that essence fully. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Next word. Uh, persons, or I like the word subsistence better. This is, uh, so let's, let's go back to our illustration, as a human being, right? I'm a human, you're a human. We have, um, our essence is human. And as a particular example of humanity, I am a person. And you're a person. And again, this makes sense, I think, uh, we, we have the same essence, you and I do, and yet we're distinct from one another. So we're distinct uh, centers of consciousness, maybe you would say. Uh, that's what we mean by the terms persons or subsistences. So this is describing basically the way in which the three are distinct from one another. The essence of God is true of all three. That's showing how the three are one how they're all God, how they all share the essence fully. The persons of God 
is talking about the distinctions between the three. So each one is a particular subsistence of the divine essence. Does that make sense? A little bit? Okay. Um, they're distinct from one another, yet they have the same nature. There's three centers of consciousness, three persons. Now, we can't stop there, because if we stopped there, uh, what would we be saying? There's three gods, right? If we just say, well, we've got three distinct persons, they're all fully divine, they all have the divine essence, well, then we'd have three gods. And this is where we have the third layer, which gets difficult to wrap our minds around. One being. And basically, when we say there's one being, we're just saying there's one God. Um, so, there are three persons, all fully divine, Yet the Bible teaches clearly that there is only one God. These three persons are all God. They're all fully God. We've seen that the last several weeks where the, the Bible teaches the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. Okay? They're distinct from one another. Right? They relate to one another. They talk to one another. The Father sends the Son. Uh, the Son sends the Spirit. Things like that. That It doesn't make sense if they're not uh, distinct from one another. And yet, there's only one God. Think of Matthew 28. We mentioned this toward the end last week. Um, the Great Commission, right? Baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there you have one being, and yet the one being of God is divided in some sense. So that, maybe that's not the right word. But Father, Son, and Spirit, distinct from one another, fully God, yet they make up one being. Okay? Questions on this? Again, we're not going to wrap our minds fully around this because, you know, as humans, the, the human essence, the human person, that all makes sense. But the problem is, as a person, you're also one being. And so the idea that there can be a being that is three personal, uh, that's what's difficult to wrap our minds around. Um, but are there any questions here? I do want to make sure this is clear before we move forward. Okay. One being, one essence, one nature, three persons. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, the text that I just brought up, Matthew 28 would be one. Baptize him in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, Well, the problem you would run into with that is all of the texts that say there's only one God. So, I'm the Lord, there is none else, there's no other God beside me. What do you, how do you explain that? Um, that is the fundamental teaching of the Old Testament all throughout. Right? Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God is one. Um, and so, what we have to hold in tension is there is only one God. And yet, in the New Testament, it's clear there's three distinct persons. So that's what we're trying to, that's what the language of persons and being, none of that's in the Bible, by the way. Okay, essence, substance, 
subsistence, nature, being, persons, none of that is in the Bible. These are all terms basically developed at the Council of Nicaea, 325, which we'll talk about maybe next week. It just depends. Um, they're helpful terms. By the way, the term Trinity is not in the Bible. Okay, it's a helpful term. It's something that the church has held to for years and has used to try. And what, what we're trying to do is basically put together everything we've seen in the last, what, three weeks we've studied the Trinity? Remember, I started with there's only one God. We went through all those texts in the Old Testament, Isaiah 45 and others. There's only one God, Deuteronomy 6. And Jesus affirms this, right, when he quotes uh, the great commandment in the Old Testament. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There's only one God. Um, think of the rich young ruler interaction when Jesus says there's only one who is good, and that's God alone. Okay, so Jesus affirms monotheism, that there is one God. And yet we also have in the New Testament the complexity of uh, the three persons. And so trying to put together the fact that the Bible teaches the Father's God, the Son's God, the Spirit's God, yet there's only one God, yet they're distinct from one another. That's why I started with all of those steps before we get to this. This is trying to, to codify all of that together and say, okay, what do we do with all of these texts? How do we make sense of them? Um, and no matter what, there's going to be tension there, but this is the best we can do. Uh, now, as far as your question about, is there a text in the Bible that says this? Overtly, there is one, depending on what translation you have. I didn't talk about this yet, I don't think. Have I talked about 1 John 5, 7 yet? No? Okay. Um, 1 John 5, 7, uh, if you look it up in the King James Version or the New King James, it'll say, um, let's see if I can remember this. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Okay, that's the King James Version. If you look it up in almost any modern translation, the verse is not there. Um, the first time I realized this, actually, I was at, I might have been 13, 14 years old. I was reading from my Schofield Reference Bible, the King James, and there was a little note there uh, next to the verse that said, that it was only found in four Greek manuscripts, but the vast majority of them don't have this verse. Um, I thought, that's interesting. Uh, so that, I just kind of filed that away in my mind. Later on, I, I realized modern translation, you look up in ESV, it's not there. It goes straight from verse uh, 6 to verse 8. And there's a good reason for that. Um, basically, this is not originally a part of 1 John. And it's, it's very clear. Uh, some textual variants are difficult to figure out. Like, for instance, the, the long ending of Mark is a tricky one. Uh, scholars debate whether it's original or not, whether it was added later, because you understand, you know, the printing press came along, what, 14-something? I don't remember the year. Uh, so for the first thousand-plus years, the Bible was copied by handwritten scribes, right? They're, they're copying a text, and then the next guy is copying their copy, and that's how the Bible was passed down for 1,500 years, basically. Uh, until 1516, you finally had a printed edition. So prior to the printing press, there's no way to really keep out errors. People, I mean, if you've ever copied anything of any length, you're going to make a mistake. Um, copying in Greek is even harder. Copying in Magiscule Greek, which is all capital letters, no spaces, no punctuation, that's even harder not to make a mistake. And so uh, mistakes happened in, in the, the, the manuscript tradition. All manuscripts have mistakes, by the way. Every single Greek manuscript is different from every other one. Um, it's just the way it is. 
Uh, and what scholars do when they put together Bible translations is they look at the various manuscripts and say, okay, what do we think the original was? So if there's a particular verse, like 1 John 5, 7, that does not appear in any Greek manuscript until 1521. Okay, think about that. 1 John was probably written, what, 60s AD? So for almost, basically, 1,500 years of copying, not a single Greek manuscript has that verse. And then all of a sudden, in 1521, there it is in the New Testament. Well, that clues you in. Okay, this was inserted. Somebody put this in here. Um, and there's more evidence to it than even that. Basically, the, it goes back to the Catholic Church. They had it in the Latin Vulgate. Um, and then basically the Pope, uh, not the Pope, but one of the papal authorities, John Froben, pressured Desiderius Erasmus to put it in the Greek New Testament. And that's how it ends up in the King James Version. Um, and Erasmus notes this even when he put it in. He puts an annotation on the page next to it saying that he didn't think it was original. Uh, because to date, you know, there's, there's 5,800 manuscripts in the New Testament. We talked about some of this in textual criticism uh, several months ago, back in January. There's 5,800 manuscripts that contain some portion of the New Testament in Greek. Uh, far more if you count Latin and other languages. But just in Greek, almost 6,000, okay? Four have 1 John 5, 7. Four. <laughs> and all four of those are after the 1500s. Okay, so this is, it's, it's as clear as could, I mean, I don't know what better evidence you would have that this was inserted at a later time. Um, so what, what stinks about it is, if this was original, if this was in the Bible, I mean, oh my goodness, what a great verse on the Trinity, right? You've got the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all, the, 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 the three are one. Uh, we would all love this. Uh, but the fact is, it's, it's not a part of the text originally. Um, it was a, a, a way of explaining the Trinity. Maybe you would say a, a creed or something of the early church that was inserted. Um, what it does show us is that this is the way the Trinity was understood, even from the earliest years. Uh, because it's somewhere around two, 300 AD, it starts, it comes into the Latin Vulgate, uh, I'm sorry, the Catholics manuscripts of the New Testament. Um, so while I don't think 1 John 5, 7 is originally a part of the Bible, okay, I do think it's true. <laughs> I agree with it. And I think it shows us that the, the early church believed this understanding of the Trinity. But, and that's a roundabout way of answering your question, no, there's no verse in the Bible that clearly says God is three persons in one being. Um, if it said that, there wouldn't be a whole lot of debate about it. But what we're trying to do is put together the things that the Bible does say and try to explain how can there be one God, yet there's these three persons that are all God. How does that all work? So anyway, that's a long answer to a very short question. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, so, the, each person of the Trinity is a subsistence of the whole essence of God. The whole essence of God is in each person of the Trinity. The Son is God, the Father is God, yet there are adequate enough distinctions between them to say the Son is not the Father. Okay, remember that triangle I showed you last week where you've got all three persons are God, but they're not one another? Um, the divine essence, and this is a very important concept, the divine essence of God subsists wholly and indivisibly, simultaneously and eternally in the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, I get that from, I think, Dr. Andy Snyder, which really is a ripoff of Augustine. Uh, this goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, that the divine essence of God subsists wholly and indivisibly. 
simultaneously and eternally in the Father, Son, and Spirit. So uh, each one of those words is very important that this is, first of all, it's an eternal relationship. The Trinity has always been the way that God is. Uh, it's not like God existed as Father and then suddenly decided to split and become, no, this is eternal relationship. Simultaneous, okay? And we'll talk about modalism if we get there uh, later. This is not, uh, it's not like God is, you know, Father, and then when he becomes a human, he becomes Jesus, the Son, and then at Pentecost, he becomes the Spirit, right? Like this is different manifestations of one person. Uh, no, the three exist simultaneously. Okay, the really debatable thing to wrestle with, and we'll talk about this more next week, hopefully, is in what ways is God three and in what ways is God one? For example, uh, when we think of will or volition, is there one will in God or are there three distinct wills? That's not an easy question to answer. Um, and we don't really have time to discuss that. I'll talk about that next week, though. So we're going to start today by looking at some of the Trinitarian heresies. Um, you could label this, you know, what the Trinity isn't. <laughs> These are all the wrong ways that people think about the Trinity. Okay, and we'll try to uh, explain each one, you know, how it's an unbiblical or false view of the Trinity. Most heresies in regards to the Trinity especially are not outright rejection of the idea that there is threeness and oneness of God. Rather, they tend to be an overemphasis of one to the diminishment of the other. Does that make sense? So they're either overemphasizing the threeness of God or they're overemphasizing the oneness of God. Okay, so the first one uh, that I have here is the Trinity is not three gods. We talked about this some already. Uh, Isaiah 43, verse 10. And there's, I mean, there's so many verses we could look at, but this is just one. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So there's only one God. Uh, the Belgic Confession, 1561. Uh, there's one phrase in here I would disagree with, but most of this is very good. The Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things, visible as well as invisible. The Son is the Word, the wisdom, the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. That's the one phrase I don't like, and we'll talk about that next week. Uh, but the rest of it goes on to say, Nevertheless, this distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit does not divide God into three, since Scripture teaches that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, each has a distinct subsistence, personhood, distinguished by characteristics. Yet, in such a way that these three persons are only one God. These persons, thus distinct, are neither divided nor fused or mixed together. Questions on that? Anything in there that you just kind of went, huh? <laughs> or does, that, does that sort of make sense? Another way, and we're not going to cover this one, another way um, that people get the Trinity wrong is by fusing the three into sort of a combination, right? Um, and that's what is being addressed there at the end. Uh, it's sort of like if you take a, <laughs> I heard Bruce Ware use this illustration, if you take a, a pitcher of grape juice and a picture of apple juice and you pour them into, you know, another pitcher, you no longer have grape juice or apple juice, right? You've got grapple juice or something, uh, some mixture of the two. 
That's not what we see with the Trinity, because we see that the Son and Father, again, are distinct persons. We can't fuse them together. So not three gods. The Trinity does not teach that there are three gods. Next one. Trinity does not teach that there is one person. Uh, some people will object to the teaching of the Trinity and say things like, uh, Jesus prayed to the Father. Uh, how can that be? Was Jesus schizophrenic? You know, if, if he's God and the Father's God, is he praying to himself? Uh, that's a misunderstanding of the Trinity because we're not saying that Jesus is the Father. They're both God. They're both divine, just like you and I are both human. Okay, And they're one being, but they are different persons. John 14, verse 25. This is, again, one of many texts that we could go to to show distinctions made between the persons. Jesus speaking, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Clearly there you see distinctions made between each of the three persons, right? Jesus says, I'm with you, the disciples now. I'm going to go to my Father and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Um, so he's not sending himself. He's not going to himself. These are three different persons. Uh, next thing, next area that people get the Trinity wrong, not uh, almost God. I don't know exactly how to phrase this. Um, we're not saying in the Trinity that one of the persons is God and the others are really close. Or that one, you know, that the Father is God and Jesus is almost God or similar to God. Uh, no, we're saying they have the same essence. Uh, homoousios is the, the Greek term that was agreed upon at the Council of Nicaea, that they're not similar natures, they share one nature. So the Father, Son, and Spirit are all equal. They're all fully God. Uh, let's see, Philippians 2, verse 5, speaking of Jesus, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Uh, verse 6 is basically saying Jesus was equal with God, yet he let go and became a human, right? Now, he obviously maintained his deity, but he did let go of some of his divine um, powers, in a sense, right, when he became a human. Uh, this is something we'll talk about later, that I, I don't believe it is accurate to say that Jesus was omniscient while on earth. Okay, where do I get that from? Well, Jesus said, I don't know when I'm returning, right? He said, only the Father knows, not me. Well, what do we do with that? Uh, I was, I'm actually reading a book right now on Christology where the author keeps trying to distinguish between the, uh, the human nature and the divine nature. And so he'd say, well, Jesus didn't know in his human nature, but he did know in his divine nature. Well, that makes no sense to me. Either he knew or he didn't know. Uh, and he says he didn't know. So, yes, there are some of the divine... Um, there's something of the, not the deity of Christ. Jesus maintained his deity, don't misunderstand. But in becoming a human, he did take on limitations of humanity. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a real human. Right? God is omnipresent. Was Jesus omnipresent? Of course not. He was in a body. He, was, he confined himself to limitations of humanity. Um, but, verse 6 is saying, the reason I, I point all that out, verse 6 he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning a thing to be held on to. Instead, he let go and became a human being. He humbled himself, became a servant. But verse 6 is clearly saying that Jesus is equal with God the Father. Does that make sense? Y'all see where I'm getting that? Okay. 
Colossians 1.19, again, speaking of Christ. In him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus is not um, part God. He's not inferior to God the Father. He is fully and equally God. Another way, another thing to say about this, um, you know, the persons are not, one is not inferior or superior to the other. That's kind of the point I'm making here. The order of the persons is not the same in the New Testament. Okay, we tend to think of Father, Son, and Spirit, right? That's how we normally talk about it. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, we normally wouldn't say, I baptize you in the name of the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. We kind of have this pecking order in our minds, right? Uh, in the New Testament, you find different orderings. You, you know, you find uh, Spirit, Son, Father, Son, Spirit, Father. Every permutation possible is found in the New Testament. And what does that tell us? Well, one thing it says is that they're equal. They're not. There's not a, a hierarchy of one is more God or one is more uh, whatever, superior to the others. Okay, uh, next way the Trinity gets wrong is parts of a whole. This is the heresy of partialism. Some have taught that there are three persons and that each is one-third of God, and all of them you know, together makes God. Uh, this is not true. Each of them is fully divine. I mean, just look at the verse we just read, right? In Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, James White writes in his book, The Forgotten Trinity, there are not three different essences, nor is the one essence divided equally into thirds. Each divine person is in full possession of the entirety of the divine nature. Again, you're not one eight billionth of a human just because there's eight billion humans. You are fully human. So in the same sense, each person is fully divine. Uh, this is where... Uh, We'll talk about analogies in a minute. Maybe you've heard the analogy of the egg, right? That, that the Trinity is like an egg. There's a shell, there's the white part, there's the yolk, three in one. Bad analogy. Because what is that saying? Uh, that each one, each one of those is a part of an egg. It's not the full egg. So that's, that would be like saying Jesus is part of God, the Spirit is part of God, the Father is part of God. Sort of like a pie chart, right? Split into thirds. And that together they make up God. No. Each one is fully divine in and of himself. Uh, next error in the Trinity, this will be the last one I think we covered today, modalism. Um, modalism is basically Unitarianism, just fancier. <laughs> These people would believe that God can appear in three forms as Father, Son, or Spirit. Not simultaneously, but that these are different manifestations of one person. Uh, this is very common in Pentecostal circles, right? Oneness Pentecostalism, that's what that's referring to. Um, if you've heard of people like T.D. Jakes, who I would not recommend you listen to, uh, he would be a modalist. Uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, I like some of their music, but they're modalists, which has always struck me as ironic. Phillips, Craig, and Dean, three people in a group, yet they're modalists. Um, so modalism teaches that, that there's three different, basically God appears in three different forms but not simultaneously. Okay, what's the problem with that? Can anybody think of something in Scripture where that just doesn't work? Jesus was baptized, right? That's a good one. Uh, Jesus is being baptized. They all see him. The Spirit's descending on him. The Father's speaking from heaven. This is my beloved Son. So we've got simultaneously all three existing. You know, was God running around really fast? How does that work in modalism? I, I don't know. They do have an explanation. Um, I don't remember it but it's not very good. 
Malachi, did you have your hand raised or were you just, okay. Um, so yeah, modalism. This is, if you've heard the analogy of water in the Trinity, again, a bad analogy. Uh, the idea that, you know, water can be a solid, a liquid, or a gas. And that's supposed to be analogous to the Trinity. No, because you can't have solid, liquid, and, and gas all in the same time, right? Ice can't also be liquid and also uh, steam. These are three different ways in which water can be seen. That's not what we're saying of God. God exists simultaneously as three distinct persons. Okay, um, as we've said already, and I've alluded to this, no analogies of the Trinity really work. James White writes this in his book, when we encounter new thoughts, new ideas, it is natural for us to fit them into pre-existing categories by comparing them with past experiences or facts. This process works just fine for most things, but for unique things, it doesn't. If something is truly unique, it cannot be compared to anything else, at least not without introducing some element of error. A little later, he says, he is totally, God, is totally unlike anything else, as he, is, as he frequently reminds us. To whom then will you liken me? There is no answer to that question, because to compare God to anything in the created order is, in the final analysis, to deny his uniqueness. Uh, we're going to watch a little video. Um, I'm just going to warn you, it's very stupid. It's a, it's a very immature video, but it's funny. And, uh, and it, it gets across this idea of don't use analogies for the Trinity. I think Brother Cole actually was the one who sent this to me uh, years ago. So anyway, you'll get a kick out of it. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star, and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like... Uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm gonna stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. 
And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. Okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Moralism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine, the Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats, get riotously drunk, and vomit in the Chicago River to celebrate our conversion. Uh, believe, believe it or not, that's actually played at seminaries uh, to train guys on, on the Trinity. Uh, I hope what that does for me, and I hope it does it for you, uh, next time you try to use an analogy of the Trinity, you'll just hear his voice. That's a bad analogy. <laughs> um, there is no good analogy for the Trinity. And so trying to compare God to something in creation is an exercise in futility. Uh, one more quote from James White, and then we'll be... Uh, done here today. The relationship among these divine persons is eternal. They have eternally existed in this unique relationship. Each of the persons is said to be eternal. Each is said to be co-equal with the others as to their divine nature. Each fully shares the one being that is God. The Father is not one-third of God, the Son one-third of God, the Spirit one-third of God. Each is fully God, co-equal with the others, and that eternally. Does that all make sense as best as we can? I understand, uh, you know, at a certain point, three persons in one being is going to be, you know, beyond our categories. Uh, but it is important for us to get this right and not to, uh, not to use bad analogies. I heard a lot of those growing up. Oh, my goodness. In Sunday school and stuff, the water, all the time. Um, and it, it really gives a distorted understanding of the Trinity.